to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope all is well with y'all in this new normal of COVID-19 as it's settling in our daily lives. I don't have too much news. I'm still awaiting returning to China and I'm not sure I can be physically there by the fall semester. So I'm preparing to teach online just in case. I have a few logistical things with my living situation in China that's causing some headaches, but otherwise I'm safe in the U.S., One small thing I'm part of is this video project curated by Isaac Lung, a videotage in Hong Kong. My video is showing on Videotage's website, but it is also all over public screens in the street of Lisbon, Portugal. So I guess if you happen to be in Lisbon, you might see my video at random street corners. I'll post a link or two on Instagram. Anyway, for today, I am talking with Jean-Éric Desaires, a conceptual and visual artist born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, before his family fled to the U.S. Just as a side note, I know that I probably mispronounced and butchered jean Eric's name, but I acknowledge this and I apologize in advance, and hopefully you can bear with it. Uh, jean Eric was originally trained as an architect from Cooper Union, and then he got his master's in architecture in Columbia, before being drawn back to art. And since then, he's never looked back. So he left his architecture job and traveled first to France before ending up in Berlin, where he has been since 2002. He most recently represented Haiti, actually, at the 2019 Venice Biennale, although the project ran into a few roadblocks, keeping it from being fully realized, which we discuss in our conversation. I met Jean-Éric through my good friend Yvette Robertson, who I interviewed in episode 31. So go check that out if you haven't heard that one. Jean-Éric and I chat for quite a bit in this episode. It's quite a long one, but there are so many things that Jean-Éric and I discussed that I thought were really wonderful and powerful, and so I kept most of it in and I did not shorten it too much. Our conversation includes how language can reconfigure one's brain, the function of art titles, and thinking about art as healing. As usual, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. Am I being taped? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look at this. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we could, we could. But I'll let you lead. Yeah. Uh, so right now I'm speaking with, with Jean-Luc Desert. Is that am I saying that correctly? Uh, Desert. Desert. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Jean-Luc, I met through a very close friend of ours, Yvette. And yeah, um, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Working on a number of projects, so um, I've had to do a bunch of running around to get different parts of it in motion. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like as I get older, 
most of my work is like not art making, but logistic puzzle fitting. I don't know if that's the same for you. I think you get that depending on what kind of art one makes, what, you know, what forms and I'm a bit of a chameleon to a certain degree. So I have no singular style. I can concur. You just, you know, you, 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 you do a lot of, uh, running around to get different things, parts of it done. Uh, though I'm not a painter like you used to be. Uh, you, you never were? I forget. No, not really. I mean, I did all the, I did the kind of academic painting that perhaps all of us did at some point in, in art school, but never saw it as how I would express myself. When did you stop painting? Oh, student years. I mean, and, I, and when I mean student years, I mean teenager, oh, okay. actually, wow. because... When, when we moved from the Caribbean, specifically Haiti, as you know, to New York via Puerto Rico, we moved to Crown Heights in Brooklyn. And so I was taking for years art classes, both at the Brooklyn Museum and at Pratt Institute, which you know, both in Brooklyn. And uh, a lot of it was this kind of academic drawing, painting type of thing. Even into high school in Manhattan, that continued to a certain degree. But I think you might know that I, though I went to Cooper Union, I actually um, spent my time in the architecture school. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, You're an architect? Yeah. Conceptual architect, I think, yeah. most people that come out of there. Really? Yeah. It's more of a, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not le le less, less um, nuts and bolts, plumber style yeah. Uh, architects. Yeah. Less functional architect. <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so how was the move from Haiti to, to New York? Um, well, being, being such a, being so young around seven years old, I can only really remember it in, um, little episodic moments. This is the late sixties. So this was a moment that I can remember white hippie kids without shoes in the streets of Manhattan giving people flowers, neon signs everywhere that had these two words that were very easy for a little kid to read. It was just G-O-G-O. Go-Go? Yeah, Go-Go, oh, Go-Go. Yeah. It was the Go-Go yeah. era. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, 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 it was a huge difference from my reality in Port-au-Prince, the capital, to move at that point to Manhattan. Yeah. I can remember, I can distinctly remember English sounding like a typewriter. That's funny. Yeah. And um, what, did, what did your parents do? My mother used to be kind of a, um, ex, I guess they'd call them like executive secretary at this point, you know, like under whoever the boss of some company corporation. That's what she was doing as she was also having her own company and importing beauty beauty products because she had also had a beauty salon so i guess she was an entrepreneur mm -hmm. um my father had been part of the army captains of the um duvalier regime in haiti which and him not being a duvalierist meaning n not in accord with this growing dictatorship uh -huh. You just had to leave. Mm. 
essentially. Did you flee as asylum seekers or you just, it was, it was, it was, it was just easy? In the late sixties, it was much, much easier, particularly if you're middle class coming from the West Indies. Mm -hmm. So there was already a network of other middle class Caribbean nights of, uh, from many places, not only Haiti, yeah. that were relocating for whatever personal reasons. So actually, I don't know all the detail, all the bureaucratic details of how that Definitely. worked. It's, yeah. it's impossible for me to. Yeah. And uh, it's even difficult. My two parents are still alive, and uh, but it's still difficult to really get that kind of information out of them because you have to understand that these are two young adults who have at some point gone through a complicated trauma. But what I do know is that had we not left uh, this uh, podcast interview wouldn't be happening. Uh, yeah. A matter of half a day would have, from what, what I do understand oh, wow. meant, uh, like uh, all three of us, my mother, my father and I would have been killed. Wow. Yeah. So then moving to the States, did your parents, it sounds like your parents supported you in the arts because you took classes and you yeah. eventually went to Cooper Union when it was free. It is really important that um, education on this level be for free, not only at Cooper Union. I'm not quite sure how I would have been able to afford such a special education, yeah. quite frankly. So I'm, I'm quite indebted to that, to tell you the truth. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. My parents have been supportive because even as a child, I can remember, I guess, being around five or so, weekly being in the Centre d'Art, with the, the art center of Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Mm -hmm. So as, even as a kid, I was painting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, not only. So yeah, the, 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 the visual arts is actually always been at my fingertips yeah since since at least five years old yeah. uh, but i mean many kids many kids can say that f most certainly so I, I, i'm not saying that that's a super special thing but that it wasn't just in the catholic school it was also specifically a all art school that yeah. my parents sent me to as a kid as well um yeah, so the support was there. The, 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 the architecture was a detour of sorts from essentially a certain kind of, let's say, middle class pressure to, to funnel your creative energy towards a profession that one has clients and so on. Yeah. And um, fortunately for me, it was Cooper because what was presented was a certain view towards architecture that is extremely expansive. I think, I think Elizabeth Diller of Scafidio, well, Scafidio was my professor. Scafidio, Diller, Renfro now well known for the High Line and now I think recently The Shed. They've ventured into even designing perfumes as architects, yeah. let alone their breakaway project, which was called The Cloud somewhere in Switzerland yeah. back ages ago. A building with no form other than a big mist of air and, and water. Yeah. So this all comes from, from that. And you now, having lived in Berlin for a bit, Cooper Architecture sensibility you've probably experienced if you've 
gone through the Jewish Museum because Liebskind is also from Cooper. Mm. And uh, there, Peter Eisman's monument to the murdered Jews was also a professor at Cooper. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, yeah there, you, you see that kind of energy that here, as well as, of course, the, the, the dean of Cooper for many years, John Haydick. There are several buildings here yeah. that, that, that express this type of poetic idea of architecture, essentially. You know, one, one literally enters and inhabits an idea versus a building, for example. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, then how did you make the move then from architecture to, or you maybe you, because your mentors were so multidisciplinary, you never thought of yourself as stuck in a particular medium or calling yourself an architect? It, well, it's not, it's not from, from lack of, and w- or will of trying. After I graduated Cooper, what I found was that there were a number of architecture offices and studios that were extremely open to interviewing a alumni graduate of Cooper Union because of the reputation. But what I also found was that when I arrived at those studios uh, and the door opened and they saw me, mm-hmm. I would often have to ponder if I would have to ask them, would, would, would they like me to give them back their jaw that they've just dropped yeah. on the floor? <laughs> um, yeah. So often I, I came to understand how back in the middle 80s, how absolutely segregated or how this a particular um, large part of the architectural profession has remained a kind of bastion of white male privilege and power. Mm. There are also a lot of white women in that profession, but they also are put in the background. And uh, yeah, I, I experienced a number of situations where I was offered one thing over the phone and offered to not design, but to draft in some back room somewhere mm-hmm. uh, instead. Or I've been told, as I was told by one corporate firm, oh, they love my portfolio and they wish that I had come a week earlier because they filled their minority quota last they said week. That. Yes, they did. Okay, great. Um, and um, um, things actually, haven't changed to this day. <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, I, I was thankful that uh, someone flubbed and said this because perhaps a certain po- a certain amount of silence would not have revealed what the real situation yeah. was. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, yeah. In any case, I I did eventually create some of my own work. And uh, I did eventually find an alumnus from the 1950s uh, from Cooper who wanted to hire another Cooper Mm -hmm. alumni who wanted to be supportive and who had a very small studio. So I learned uh, a number of things there. And... um, When the time came around, I did uh, my road back into active art making was a bit circuitous. So I actually went back to school for my master's. So I went to Columbia, where my um, former professor at Cooper 
had become the director, mm-hmm. Bernard Chumi. Um, so this was back to school for architecture? Or for, for, for architecture. Okay. So, um, so I actually went to Columbia as well for architecture. As I said, the director had been my professor at Coop, one of my professors at Cooper. And that helps. Uh, it, 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 it helped. Um, it also let me know that there's a certain aspect of the framework of at, at Columbia that I would already fit in. Mm. So this was important. But I also knew that Columbia was much more expansive than Cooper Union. Cooper Union is, at least the architecture school, is you can't get more ivory than that ivory tower. And I don't mean that merely racially, though I understand that slightly has slightly changed. Slightly. Ho- hopefully teaching the Saturday program when I was there was, was helpful. But um, Columbia was much more open to things that Cooper Union was not. So, for example, while I was at Columbia... I took the opportunity to look at Buckminster Fuller, who was seen too much as, as a scientist or an engineer mm-hmm. by the Cooper, the Cooper scene. Yeah. I was able to spend a year at Columbia studying, God forbid, real estate, finance, and development. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot about the business and strategies of how so much is built, not only in New York, but in America. Mm. And those 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 topics and those types of access to that type of knowledge was not available mm. at Cooper. Yeah, and so I really took advantage of this to to broaden my sense because this is already in the early middle nineties, and I don't know if it was a re- recession, but there were some complicated things, and it was even with these diplomas, it was actually very difficult to find work in a in a studio hmm. and i needed to expand my my knowledge base and determine how to approach several different doors and it was towards the end of that experience where i was unable to get into a particular studio at columbia that i really wanted to be part of and this is the studio of the late Zaha Hadid, oh. the Iraqi-born architect based in London. There must have been like a long line of people wanting to. There really, really were. And in retrospect, I'm perhaps I'm happy that I was unable to get in it because those students hardly got any sleep. Uh, I did have a small little part-time job and that would have been impossible to take her studio. But she had been invited and gave and, and created an exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum and the Franklin Wright building from 19 whatever, mm-hmm. 50 something, nine or 60. The theme of the exhibition that she had designed was all about suprematist art and architecture. Okay. Uh, Leonidev, um, Melnikov. And it was absolutely astounding because it was the first time that I saw someone take control of a very difficult building for all many people may be impressed by Frank Lloyd Wright's building. It's very difficult to show art there because one has to remember that the majority of the spaces, all the floors are not level. They're always slanted. 
Mm-hmm. So imagine, you know, showing a Rothko uh, painting yeah. there. One always has to contend with a floor and a ceiling that are uh, not perpendicular to the wall. Yeah. So, but Zaha, this was, she, she showed a certain power of how to exploit this. Mm. And I was incredibly impressed by this. And it, at one moment, there's this wonderful like leaping man costume flying contraption by Tatlin that is suspended uh, uh, at the center of this spiral above. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, or, or I should say not at the center, but off center ah. so that it actually looks as if this figure, which typically would be put in a center of a space like that, almost as a chandelier, in fact, Almost echoes that that famous kind of create made up image of um, Eve Klein jumping, you know, oh, the, 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 the wall. Leap into the void. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so she creates with all the different elements, the paintings, the sculptures, the objects, these kind of very dynamic uh, uh, moments. And she creates and taps into the tension that that architecture has as a possibility. And I discovered at that moment, oh, I'd rather shift into this. Mm. And uh, it was from that point on that I made a kind of concerted effort to find a exhibition design studio that I could enter into in New York or in the United States. I found that the top studio was in fact uh, there in New York, in Soho called Ralph Applebaum at the time. They're very well known for they had just done the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C. Okay. So I made sure to take, get, take a train and, 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 and go to yeah. do my homework. Like they always say, you should, if you want a particular job, you need to do your research yeah. very well. And so I did, entered there on a relatively low level, but a certain amount of luck but not all luck. I was able to ascend in that space as an exhibition designer. And so I went from working on projects that were like the Motown Museum to the Museum of African American History. And little by little, uh, I shifted to working on exhibitions at the Whitney and eventually and the Parish Art Museum out in the Hamptons. The Corsican, I'm forgetting, in in Washington, D.C., and then eventually with Sotheby's. And so so from the kind of, let's say, ethnic cultural uh, spaces to the kind of creative artistic spaces. And uh, I was able to successfully do that for seven years. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really was able to experiment a lot and even take on some of these spaces as artistic endeavors of sorts where I could, let's say, say something through the presentation of uh, different objects, artifacts, and, and so on, and develop my, under, my visual understanding because I essentially became a manager as well because I'd have to work with graphic designers and really tweak and see 
is that font saying everything it needs to say thematically yeah and so on but it was also a good way to learn how to n- not merely be anchored to what many architects are anchored to you know the the tiles the plumbing the electricity mm-hmm. you know and so on but really ah how how do, how does one delicately deal with content space spaces yeah. and and the way in which you want to engage the viewer in an experience essentially in an in an experience and um that that came to help me a lot with eventually getting back into my artwork and and figuring out all of the steps that it takes to to make those projects happen yeah basically so a bit circuitous but i um i'd been wanting to get there for a long time and i needed i needed this period of 7 years as a bridge somehow Yeah. You know. I mean, we need time to develop, I think, and to get away to think and grow in some ways. I mean, I needed 3 years away from art making to decide I wanted to go back into art, you know. Mm. Mm. I think like anytime a young artist asks if they should go to grad school, I'm always like take time off and think about it very carefully, get a 9 to 5 job. see if you care to make art after that see if you care to make art when no one's actually telling you what to do and yeah i don't know i needed that i think that's for me that's what the time of like not thinking about yourself but like thinking how you can navigate it is important i i concur with you on that because i did take between cooper and columbia a little bit more than 5 years and in that time i was able to do a whole variety of things i had a partner uh we were both living in soho and a relatively cheap uh, loft at the time that's like something i can't imagine <laughs> um well you you know we 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 rented it we rented a space from what i call a, a macrame goddess from the 70s who i don't know i guess was paying like maybe 300 or 400 for this um for a loft space for for like a loft space that's about i don't know 1500 square feet I guess I I can't remember square feet anymore uh, on Green Street uh-huh. and we were paying her a thousand so you do the math of what her um yeah she was able to live off of yeah, yeah. by not living no longer living in Manhattan at all yeah and so pulling in and finding a thousand a month for the two of us to art to artists was incredibly difficult at times yeah but I knew that it was something worth figuring out how 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 to do yeah and while you were and and while you're doing these exhibition designs were you also doing your own work I you- tried I tried and I did but eventually I gave it I gave up the exhibition the the, the job this the, the the very cushy job that I knew people were incredibly envious of um it took you time to get there so Yeah, I gave I I I, I, I yeah, I gave it up because more and more I found myself working in that field till 11 at night, 12, 1 in the morning all the time. Yeah. And I I realized that the only way that I could do my work would be uh, to to do it full time and that that spurned me to basically leave America yeah. and and leave New York because New York is New York is 
as common as mud in in this way that it happens in other places as well. Whereas if you develop a particular hat that people know that you are wearing, they don't want to see you in any other way. So yeah. it was important for me to leave the atmosphere or the environment where so many people had come to know me as this person who was designing these um, sometimes very well covered exhibitions, the, de the designer of those, um, spa those spaces. So it was really important to just leave and go and do my work 100% elsewhere. Mm. And uh, I How also- did you pick Berlin? I didn't pick Berlin. Berlin picked me Oh really? because I moved to Paris because I just didn't want to speak English anymore. So I thought, why not go somewhere that I knew a bit and re-engage speaking in my mother tongue mm -hmm. and just stop speaking English. I don't know how it is for you, but it is real. You think differently, you feel differently, you navigate yourself differently when you shift languages. I can only imagine because I really only speak English and uh, my German isn't good enough to, I think, for that level to happen. Uh, but I've heard about it and hopefully when I go to China, hopefully at the end of two years, I'll learn enough Chinese that I can potentially experience that. I think it's an important human experience, let alone an artistic one. I think it's a really important human one. In any case, I, 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 I got on a plane. Well... Like all things in New York, my opportunity for leaving was um, I had broken up. So I went from one loft and I found a bigger loft in the Lower East Side, you know, in parentheses. You know, if you know people living in lofts, when you're a part of that circuit, it's easier to go from loft to loft than it is when you're outside that circuit. Yeah. So that's yeah. how that happened. Yeah. And in any case, so I went from my one loft to the next, and and as all things in New York, you make th you make your plans to coordinate with your lease obligations. <laughs> the date, you know, yeah. you open up your lease and you go, okay, because you know if you leave too early, you get screwed, and you if you leave too late, mm -hmm. you get screwed. Mm -hmm. So that was my countdown: was when my lease was going to. When I, when I would have an opportunity to, to get out, to, go, to leave, just yeah. get rid of it. And I didn't want to do one of these things. I didn't want to make one of these complicated plans that some people who leave New York do, which is that they hold on to their place and they sublet it forever. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, become exacerbate the existing problem that's there. So as things as things would have it, someone bought the building, I think, six months earlier or something. And I ended up, I think, being homeless for about three months before that date. Um, Crashing on people's couches. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I rented, uh, put my stuff in storage and did a lot of couch surfing because I knew that I would be still leaving. And yeah. it's just not enough time to be able to rent something. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so I moved to Paris, and uh, like you, I was able to get a pretty cushy gig in Paris, and I was able to stay there for a couple of years. I got a residency at a place, a pretty fabulous place, called Cité Internationale des Arts, okay. in the 4th arrondissement, on the Seine itself, in the middle of Paris. It's a multi-year residency, no, I just I just kept in, um, extending it. Oh, okay. But that's part of the privilege of having a name like Jean-Ric. 
Martin Jules Camel Desert. Than the people who live there who were named like Mahmoud or mm-hmm. Muhammad or yeah. mm-hmm. Hassan or whatever. There are prejudices there that are very real. And I benefited from a certain amount of Francophonic world privilege mm-hmm. from this old colony that kicked the French out. Mm. It's just embedded in my name. And so I experienced that. But that also came with patronizing racism as well. And it was perhaps the certain aspects of that patronizing racism after a number of years that I thought, well, this golden cage won't last forever and I should leave. And so I did. And I already had known Berlin since the wrapping of the Reichstag by Christo and Jean-Claude mm-hmm. back in the 90s. And Were you able to come here and see it? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That that was uh, I. I made a special trip to to yeah. see to see that. And next year, I hope maybe I can go see the wrapping of the yeah. Arc de Triomphe uh, oh, as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I was never a fan of uh, Christo uh, until you saw it in person, or just that one. I was just never a fan in general. I I, I found this to be a particular type of. Um, 1960s conceptualism that left me kind of dry, mm-hmm. even though a lot of concept art from that time is dry. Yeah, I was I was less fascinated by the thing itself, and I was much more fascinated by the fact that an artwork can mobilize a spirit and an energy within a city, let alone a country. Mm. And clearly, there were people who were making poking fun at it for, you know, there were, there were beer shops all throughout Berlin that had in their windows, all their beers wrapped, <laughs> um, you know, different shops had mannequins wrapped. Yeah. I mean, it, it had a huge kind of effect. Yeah. And when you went to actually see it, it, it's an understatement to say that there were thousands of people there. Yeah. It's an understatement. Yeah. And so Oh, and also just to clarify for listeners, uh, two artists had wrapped the Reichstag, which is a governmental building, and now I think it's the center of the parliament or? It's the parliament. Right? Yeah, it's, it's parliament. the parliament yeah. building. And so in the 90s, the, uh Christo and Jean-Claude wrapped the Reichstag, like the entire building. And the Reichstag, the Reichstag, I think it, it's a tender it has a tender spot of history because it faci- as a building it facilitated Hitler's rise. And it's been hypothesized that essentially, I don't know if that's the right word, that his people caused an arson fire that created a state of emergency back in 1933, I believe. That led him to to take take more power. And so it's it's a very, very symbolic charged um, charged space. So, and many historians saw that, and clearly, I think the choice by Christo and Jean Claude were, were very clear about that. So, yeah, I came I came to to see that. 
I had no idea at the time, and I have to say I'm still impressed by certain aspects of their project. Again, it's not really the, though the engineering is awesome of how they did it, no one should think that doing something like that is by any means easy. It's incredibly complicated. Well, but they both said that like that was part of the art, the bureaucracy of it. Not only the bureaucracy, the engineering. Yeah. The fabric was en- was specially engineered. The the way in which it folded and was draped was and when I say engineering, I really mean like like structural engineers had to yeah. get involved. It's a little bit like the larger works of um Rachel Whiteread from mm-hmm. the UK. Mm-hmm. Those are not easy. They yeah. may look easy. They may, but they're... Actually, I have no idea how they make them. Uh, which, uh, Rachel, Rachel's in her studio. Because like, some of them are like cast of inside a building. You yeah, know? Well, and, the, yeah. And just, and just like, I don't even know if I... Huge amount of work. I didn't even know how I would go about doing that. Yeah, know? huge amount of work. I mean, I do, I do now know, I mean, knowing enough about combination of architecture and stuff you do in the model making shop or whatever. I mean, but it's, it's a big work. I mean, some of those projects like her, I think famous building, it's not fully solid inside. Oh really? No, 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 no. It's made to look that way, but the only way that you can get a cast of the interior is literally to build it from the interior. And, and so it's a, it's very weird. It's very, um, you know, in any case, the, so it was less the object. It was the the way in which it was made here. Yes, the bureaucracy for sure, but the way in which it animated people, this for me was way, way, way more the thing, because I think that that's something that I look towards being able to do in my art. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, not always successful at it. On um, to me, it's it laid out a certain benchmark mm. that is worth going to. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The other thing that really impressed me that I only found out afterwards is that they don't accept public funding. They raise the funds for their projects and the drawings privately, and they can they retain all control over it. They were even asked, given the success of the project here, um, if they would allow it to be longer. And they said no, that Mm. they, you know, they really had this, they had, they figured it out. They've got good lawyers, something all artists should have, have though though difficult to um, hunt down. I'm still hunting uh, a good one down. (laughs) We live in a world where it's not a bad idea to really have one on your side ready whenever you may need. Yeah. So um, I think it's I think it's a practical thing that artists should consider more more seriously and not at a moment of distress. Mm-hmm. Um, any, add, adding to my things of many things I'd need to do. <laughs> yes, add add that to the list. So that part of it really fascinates me because I can honestly say that funding and fi- funding my projects through the years has been the single most complicated and difficult things. Getting getting the amount of funding that some ideas need to be played out, yeah. particularly to be fair, you know, if you're needing to have like a team of people working on things to get to get them done. So to, to, to see that they were able to create that amount of energy 
and make it happen and self-fund. You know, and this is this is pre-Kickstarter. Yeah, pre-Kickstarter. And I'm not quite convinced at the Kickstarter, but um, I, I, I really I really wonder for a very serious studio endeavor if that's really the best way is what I'm I'm I'm, yeah. I'm 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 saying, and I'm very impressed that this older generation of Christo and and Jean Claude have been able to figure it out, mind you. They're also from a generation that I may have paid, you know, in the, what is it, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, I may have been paying, I may have been paying a thousand, which people consider cheap for a loft, but they're from a generation where people were paying like a hundred, you know, and so the value of what could be had with money uh, was much stronger. And also their foundation of when they started too. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So then so you saw the Reichstag and then you moved to Berlin. Yeah. I, I saw, I saw the Reichstag. I had also done some exhibition stuff here. I mean, I, I'd had some negative experience in Berlin because actually I don't remember if it's the same year as the Reichstag might've been or the year before. I don't really remember. I was attacked here. Oh shit. Um, it was definitely racial. Um, in which neighborhood? Um, the neighborhood that the Berliners call Mitte. Okay. So mm-hmm. um, center. Mm-hmm. And the former East. It's on a very, what's now become a very posh street, Auguststrasse, like, with the with Kunstwerke and like tourist, all the galleries. Center now. Yeah. But back then, I remember it was around 11 o'clock at night, and these two guys, one more drunk than the other, and they started screaming at me, and it was definitely racially tinged. And lunged at me to, you know, and um, <clears throat> yeah, in all the confusion, I had to kind of like look for cover. I ran into a, a gallery. This is 11 o'clock at night, but it, a gallery was open because they were installing for their upcoming opening. Mm-hmm. And um, it was run by this guy who most people call Judy. Mm-hmm. He, he he now has one of the most prestigious galleries in Berlin because the name of the gallery that I ran into was called Eigen und Art. Okay, yeah, I know that. Um, but at that moment in the 90s, he was still kind of building up. Yeah. And he was there and I forget who else uh, they were installing and they kind of like gave me some refuge. Um, Shit. Um, and I remember the, 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 the guys who were attacking me got... You know, there were these two women in the street, uh, young women. They just started yelling and screaming at them, all in German, which I didn't understand anything, which I was very impressed that, you know, strangers could read a situation and come to my defense, mm-hmm. actually. One knows there are so many situations of the same exact kind of setup where it's the black man who mm-hmm. is attacked. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, like he must be the, the culprit, yeah. but it was very clear that I was the victim. In any case, I, I, I took this on eventually as a kind of important experience to contend with, because I don't think I, I never had a physical attack in the U S I've had other issues, but, but knock on wood, I haven't had, you know, of course it happens. But nonetheless, uh, there's this really horrible kind of, I don't know, this kind of toxic smoke that one feels inside from that type of incident. 
And when I returned back to New York, I realized that part of the privilege of being a creative person, whether you're a poet or a filmmaker or visual artist, is that we can work a lot of complicated emotional things through our work. Mm. Yeah, it's um, sort of therapy. Of sorts, yeah. And so I transformed the experience into an artwork. Um, what did and, you make? Well, it was it was the impetus for a work that became a an object. It became a performance. It became which eventually became photographs and videos and billboards. And this is what eventually became what I titled my Negerhosen two thousand project. Mm -hmm. And um, Neger, Neger is exactly like what it sounds like. It's Negro or nigger. Hosen is just the German word for pants. And I literally created a pair of Lederhosen, yeah. which is this kind of folk-ish, folk clothing that's more associated in Germany with Bavarians. Yeah, southern Germany. Yeah, yeah. So... When I in New York, I just found leather and created this pair of lederhosen from thin air. I tried to find leather that approximated Caucasian skin and thought, okay, I'll I'll enter into this skin of this kind of cliche cartoon of a German to cynically fulfill perhaps what would have been more appropriate. For, for this person who saw me walking while black. Yeah. And... Um, so this is a performance. So it's a bit of a performance. What I decided to do after I made the costume, because I, I, I was still a little bit uncertain, but I felt that the a certain aspect of the necessary, well, I'll use this kind of cliche term, healing, would, would be to re-enter into the fire mm. and come back to Germany. Mm. So I thought, get, in the, get into this costume and go back this way. Yeah. And luckily at the time, I was friends with Okuyan Wizor. You really? A, uh, yeah. Oh, and, shit. And, and he had not yet gotten the position to be the next... Um, curator for Documenta, oh, okay. but he was within that network. So he was, he essentially had them put me on a list so that I could come to Documenta 10. Okay. Uh, I think this was in 97. And so I thought, well, what better place to inaugurate this project of Negerhosen 2000 than um, then in Castle uh, Germany. Germany at Documented Ten, and so I essentially went as a kind of art tourist, if you will, <laughs> um, um, but you know dressed in my yeah. rather elaborate yeah. outfit, yeah. Um, you know, with a very different agenda than some of the other, or I should say, one of the more well-known couples that travel as art tourists in full regalia. They're known as Eva and Adela. I'm sure you've seen them, a man and woman couple, both bald-headed. Um, uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you've seen them. So, yeah, so I went back and initiated it there, and I bought myself, like, um, I did it several times. So I, I went, I bought uh, these, these kind of open-ended travel 
train tickets so that I could travel all throughout Germany mm-hmm. um, yeah. yep. uh, wearing the outfit. And then I, I, I did it in two phases because I think the experience of doing this work made me realize that I needed to do my work more. Mm. And, um, and before that, you were sort of dipping your toes in the water slightly? Or what do you mean by that? You need to do your work Well, because, because when, I had, when I was doing, when I went to see Christo, when I did this, initiated this project, I was still doing the exhibition design oh, work. Oh, even while in France? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh. no, in, in New York. Yeah. Wait, wait, I, I, was, I thought you were in France. I moved to France at, in 99. Okay. But all through mo- seven years of the 90s, okay. I was in New York. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I had, in my head I imagined from Fran- Paris you had then gone to see Christo and then that then inspired. I was no, 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 okay. no, 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 um, no. Okay. Uh, these artistic adventures and experiences and trials, tryouts were profound toe dipping yeah. into the thing into the scene yeah and like normally what i started to do anyway was that even though i had this very cushy job i used to force my way of taking a month off Mm. which i think all americans should do yeah in unison if you could if everybody says it at the same time then it happens if only a hundred thousand people say it that's not enough yeah so I was doing what I was doing as an exhibition designer sufficiently well enough that I wasn't someone that they wanted to lose. Mm. But that said, even some of my work while I was doing the performances got interrupted so that I could fly to Paris and meet with the lawyers of Sotheby's and Mohammed Al-Fayed and mm. blah, 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 and do the next big you know, exhibition thing. So I realized at a certain point that there would always be these interruptions and that I would need to come back to Europe and just do my work. Yeah, I see. You know, and that's, that's, that's when I was able to coordinate it so that in 99, I just mm. you know, came back and I would have stayed in France had I not felt the, the heavy thumb on my head of a colonial past with an intimate relationship that I had with France. And that intimacy creates awkwardness and discomfort because I'm in their territory. And being in Germany, being in Berlin, I don't have that colonial relationship with them. And that was, for me, a bit more liberating. Mm. Not that by any means that there is a paradise anywhere, Mm for people of color in the Euro West, there, there are zones I, I won't go to to find out. But no, I, I left France because I, I was willing to leave a place where I spoke the language and come to a place that I didn't speak the language because ultimately under, under the microscope of the analysis, France was very oppressive. Mm. And ignorance is bliss. And perhaps if I had understood less French, mm. I wouldn't have understood as much. And uh, I think that this is a misconception and misunderstanding that particularly black Americans have about France, because one looks at figures from the American perspective, black Americans specifically, they look at 
African-Americans like Josephine Baker or James Baldwin and those positive experiences and don't realize actually all the other aspects of what's really happening uh, there and what those people are having to contend with, let alone the range of people of color in the continental French world, basically. And I was getting to understand all of that when I was living there and all the kind of complicated hierarchies that are reinforced and, 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 and created there by a number of actors in, in, in there. Yeah. So uh, Germany was, was lighter for me, but I often tell people that Berlin is not really like the rest of Germany. It yeah. really is very much like the New York of yeah. this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure I would find the same level of comfort in other parts. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's essentially how I found myself here and I've been able to function. It's really been to my surprise, to tell you the truth, that I walked into an art scene that was happening here. Mm-hmm. I had no real idea. I knew that there was all this construction because of the fall of the wall and all of that, but I really didn't understand that there was this big art scene. Eventually, under analysis, I began to understand, ah, there are a number of things happening here in this capital of a major Western country in Europe. And, ah, okay, you know, artists are actually able to, at that time, rent a very cheap space. You know, you could rent a space. When I moved here in 2002, you could rent a space in, you could find and rent a space in less than a week, which is no longer the case. The I was still living on and off really on dollars that I had saved. And the dollar was twice the power of the euro Mm. at that time. So things were super cheap from my perspective for surviving. And I, and this I would suggest to a lot of artists, but not all artists are that way, that I was incredibly conservative and I never overspent on anything to really think in the smartest way, even if everything is very cheap, yeah. doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean that you need like a thousand SpongeBob's or whatever if they're, <laughs> you know, they're ten cents each. Yeah. Um, you know, is this a personal experience you're talking about? <laughs> no, no I, so I, I was, I was, I was really very, very, and 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 what I realized actually, little by little, was that oh, I was my first apartment here was about. 600 euros a month that I had uh, sublet and it took me maybe about six months to find find out that it was too expensive Mm, yeah it was a very nice apartment I really liked it but I should have been paying a third to half of that yeah you know or less it's just you know but I didn't know that because 600 from the perspective of Paris or New York seems amazing for a beautiful large apartment with balcony and you know old this and that but everything's expensive you're not really working that's true that's true so yeah but i i uh, i just got out of that moved into another place uh, as a share which was cheaper then i went even to another cheaper place uh, i like i went the other way yeah. i went down 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 yeah. because i i wanted to preserve I wanted to preserve my calmness and 
the worst thing, I don't, I don't know how it is for everyone else, but I can't be truly creative if I'm freaked out. I need a certain level of meditative calmness. Yeah. Yes, there's a certain stress that is, you know, deadlines and all of that to, good, to, yeah. that can be good. But if you have a very large existential fear and, you know, your rent is a thousand a month or more or whatever, I can't, I can't think, I can't function. Yeah. Essentially. So, um, yeah. What, like figuring out when it starts becoming constrictive. That's, I mean, it's always hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's good to just be, that's what I mean by conservative. You know, I've seen artists come to Berlin and rent beautiful apartments, rent beautiful studios and they kind of want to show off a little bit and it's cheaper than what they were renting in wherever yeah. else they were coming from. But they blew through so much money in one or two years yeah. that, you know, who, who, who benefited, you know, it, it, it exacerbates gentrification and it benefits the uh, landlords and it's just bullshit. Yeah. So, so anyway, it's, it, it, Berlin has been a very good, calm space for me and after getting everything slowly regularized because i did realize that when i moved back then there was a loophole for artists of sorts for being able to live here tricky like it always is so it's not like there's a big sign saying we welcome all artists so you're talking about the artist visa yeah generically called the artist visa though there is no visa called the artist yeah, visa. yeah 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 Mm -hmm. um, freelance visa. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, I, having become a naturalized American, I knew that an American passport gave a certain privilege and that that was one worth banking on and, mm -hmm. and, and getting what was necessary to be able to be a, uh, an immigrant, yeah. uh, here even though I think that Americans like to call themselves expats rather than immigrants. I don't know. Maybe it has to do with, I don't know, large territory, colonial white European territory yeah. places. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. But um, in any case, after getting regularized here, which is key, very, very key, I don't, I don't recommend it for anybody to not figure that out and think that they'll survive here because it also meant that being really in the system correctly, it meant that there were a whole variety of grants and commissions and so on that were open to me Yeah, that had I not had the right kind of visa, the right kind of paperwork. It was like, well, if you can't show us that paperwork, we can't offer you this yeah. one, two, three, six thousand euros yeah. to do something. Yeah. And, you know, you, you don't, if you can create the right situation, you don't need a great deal of money to live here. And so it really does mean something. Yeah. And perhaps the same way that certain funds were able to be very um, useful to people like Christo and, 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 and Jean-Claude and so on. So, yeah, so that's how this city has been able to work. And I was delighted eventually to see that they were not a art scene. I think that the more honest thing to say is that there were multiple art scenes happening in Berlin. Well, there always is, hopefully in, in, a, in a big enough city. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that meant 
like I said, all many different. So they were, you know, art spaces that have nothing to do with, with commercial market. They were also very intense market driven scenes. Sometimes they intersected, sometimes they didn't, but it did offer the possibility for certain type of experimentation. And, and I often use Berlin as a, as a base because I can't say that I exhibited in Berlin a lot, but by having this base, which unbeknownst to me became hip. Yeah. Um, so and a lot of cultural cachet. Yeah. I didn't know. Lot. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Even though I guess I'm contributing to it. But eventually I was also getting invited and exhibiting back in the US, exhibiting in France, exhibiting in Belgium, exhibiting mm. in the Netherlands. And it was just like all over the place. Yeah. And maybe about once a year, I might have a gig, uh, an interesting thing going on in Berlin. And, and I always just looked to make sure that they were being properly funded and figuring out the right decisions of when should I self-fund and when should I make certain and keep my finger on the pulse so that whoever is asking me to engage in some exhibit pays for every eraser and every pencil and every coffee yeah, and so on. So yeah. it's a weird mixed bag of things, but that was, it, it gave me the opportunity to really keep what I had started or what I, what I had ignited and begun uh, with my studio in New York, in, well, not just New York, but in Paris yeah. going. Yeah. Because uh, one of the great things about certain, not all, um, artist residencies is in some residencies like that one, but, it, but it's also your own character. The type of friendly networking that you can do can actually be quite, quite wonderful. Yeah. You know, um, and networking doesn't have to, you know, there's, there's the smarmy style of, of networking. And then there's, I think, a kind of networking that is just much more, um, well, hanging out and, and hanging yeah. out and just like talking and relaxing, yeah. getting to know people. Yeah. Well, some of them, some of them are definitely, um, high end, um, connections, connections, no, con uh, but resorts, but also connections focused. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've never been a fellow of, but I've been to a number of things at the American Academy in Berlin at Grunewald. Mm. And that's, that's very connected. That's yeah, very yeah, much, yeah, uh, yeah. uh, you, you, you go to an event there and your name is written and everybody else who's been invited to whatever the soiree is, is written on a photocopy thing and distributed to everybody with your contacts yeah. and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's been turned into a thing, yeah. you know, and it's not, it's not looked down on by any means. It's, it's pushed. So, yeah. And there can be benefits from it. And, 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 and I think that there are benefits from being in residencies where you really are connecting with poets and economists and yeah. scientists. And, you know, the concept of residencies is, comes from a colonial one. No, I don't know. It, the, as I understand it, the, the idea of a residency first came when uh, European explorers were, exploring uh, North America, South America, and they needed artists to paint things and document things. So those are like the first residents. Mm. So they put these artists on these boats and you can go travel the world, 
gain experience, make some art for the boats or whoever's funding, and then you fly, you not fly, you take a ship back. Mm, right? mm. And that's where this idea of the artist going into nature and finding inspiration and then like traveling to a place as part of the artistic practice. What century are we talking about? Or is this, is this part of this uh, Italian? Part, part, it- part, part of the exploration of the new world. Ah, okay. Right. Okay. So interesting. Interesting. As yeah. I understand it, I, I saw it at a lecture, so it could be, maybe I'm sure someone can probably send a more uh, academic uh, source. I only have like, a lecture from my memory. No, that's that's uh, that makes me very curious, actually, because uh, it it is fascinating the the types of work that I've seen that comes out of like when Braz- the territories of what is now Brazil were, were being colonized, and the, the 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 beautiful renderings that came out of uh, uh, on on the flora, fauna yeah. and flora there and when you think of a lot of residencies now as it gets more academic and like conceptual no but they a lot of these residencies were based on like painters right landscape painters places for landscape painters to go and paint things yeah yeah right? and I, I guess this predates but nonetheless it's 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 similar stuff of like like audubon who, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who's born in the same island that i'm born in oh really yeah he's, he's also born on what would become haiti I didn't know that. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think of works like Audubon, but that it's a kind of a tradition. Yeah, basically. Sorry, random sidetrack. No, no, no. Good, a good, a, 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 a good one. I have to say, I, I like to be inspired by uh, those type of things. Uh, though I think today, artistically speaking, I think that we live in, we live in a moment where where I think that we need to be to allow ourselves to be inspired by the very intense state of the world around us yeah and that's from the environment to local as well as meta politics quite frankly i find myself shifting into a different territory i'm not sure that i would do a project like negrohosen 2000 anymore not, not that I have any issues with having done it as, as an artwork, as a performance, as billboards, as all the different manifestations of that work. But I think that we're in a territory of, in history now where the artist has a significant role to play that is, in my opinion, not very passive. And I don't necessarily mean to conflate this completely, though maybe partially, with art activism, mm-hmm. per se. But I think that we need to address realities in a much more powerful and riveting way so that the work is such an experience that, like the, like the Christo mm-hmm. piece, that, that, that buzzes can yeah. be created. I did an artwork back in 2002. So... That was, yeah, the same year I moved to Berlin. And it was, I was, having lived in New York for so many years, I was really devastated by the attack of September 11th. Um, oh, yes, one year after. Yeah. And so actually, four months after I'd moved 
already to Berlin mm -hmm. in 2002. And I was asked by some people through my network that I had actually met <laughs> in Paris at the residency. You know, th this friend tells another friend, another friend and that kind of thing. And uh, I was asked to create an artwork for, I guess in the American context, you would just call it like a shop window, like a shop window. Like a display. Like a display shop Like window. an Andy Warhol shop window display. Yeah. 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 Okay. But there was no shop connected to this uh, oh, okay. shop window. So it was know. just, it was just like it's a just, shop window. Just, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And it, it, it pretty central it, right here in Kreuzberg. And they said, okay, you know, would you be willing to do a project there? And uh, in May, 1st of May, which is a holiday. And um, I said, yeah. And for me, it would be a kind of investigation, an artistic investigation on my part about how do I deal with this trauma of September 11th. Mm -hmm. And I immediately got into the headspace that I'm didn't, I didn't want to swallow, let's say, the propaganda that we're being forced to swallow with regards to fear yeah. and these particular two towers, which I can remember as a little kid being built yeah. for many years. I've been in it. I've been in them. Just when I, yeah, I eventually, I think at one point I was about to get a, have a studio in one of the World Trade Centers. Really? But um, yeah, it, to me, it was such a kind of complicated trauma. How I felt that it was a, how did the expression goes, um, fish or cut bait moment with regards to being an artist and making art. Like if I can't deal with this, mm -hmm. then I, I, I need to leave mm -hmm. and do something else. And, I, and, and if art, if an artwork through my practice can't Confronted. contend with it, then I, again, I, 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 I need to do something else because these are real things. And mm. wh wh where is the place of art in, in, in the shadow of this kind of crap? You know, I, I, I'm not interested in decorating walls. Mm -hmm. And so uh, while I was here, I went to Alexanderplatz where there was a store that no longer exists that sells like high end quality professional flags. So you can buy big flags of any country, you know, you can they have a big catalog, you can order, you know, and so on. So I ended up thinking, okay, why don't, I'm going to buy these th four flags of what I think is a, is a very kind of special club of power in the world today. So I bought an American flag. I bought a British flag. I bought a French flag and I bought a German flag. Mm -hmm. And I took it back to the space that I was living in, in the new place that I was living in here. And I bought some little flags and I got myself like, I made, I made like some little Barbie doll size scaled burkas and started to figure out how I would turn each one of those into an Afghanistan burqa because we were pointing the finger at, Af or, you know, the news was pointing the finger towards Afghanistan as the place that would have to pay for this somehow. Mm -hmm. And the Saudi Arabia thing was kind of like, 
not being dealt with per se. Right. And the image of the Afghanistan burqa was a very strong one that had been growing in the years before the attacks of September 11th. If you were anywhere part of that whole world of people in academic circles, human rights, and so on, because of the images that were being distributed, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan, women being kind of in execution and so on, you know, in these burqas. So I thought to create this very, hopefully, and I think convincingly, arresting image of these four burqas, like sentinels, standing one next to each other in this kind of very emblematic symbols of power. Yeah. Particularly of the West, obviously. Uh, were they, how were they displayed? Like were they on in the, the window? But were they? Is it like on a on a head with a stand? Or no, no, just no, hanging? no mannequin. No mannequin. No mannequin. The the inference of these burkas to be what I would associate as commercial on commercial mannequins, like like oh, you know, this is the next um, fashion or whatever. fashion. You know, Chanel, Karl Lagerfeld uh, thing. Absolutely. You know, artists have to do a certain type of editing and you, you, in, your, in your details. Mm-hmm. So putting it on a mannequin would have been like putting a little price tag yeah. uh, 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 ticket on it. No, that's not what these about. So the form that it needed to be on needed to, I'll use this elegant word, they needed to be galumphy. <laughs> You know, they just needed to just, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. You, 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 you would have no idea what was underneath. Mm. You, 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 it just fills out the, yeah. the burqa well enough. So nobody knows if it's a mannequin or, you know, in reality, it was just cut boxes that just yeah. filled it out. Yeah. Because they, they just needed to, they needed to have a kind of more timeless quality to them. Like one might have like with a karyotid somewhere, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And not have this kind of like, oh, you know, Macy's uh, thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it was just the four of them, if you will, kind of at attention, just facing out. And I should say that to the listeners who wouldn't know that that particular part of um, Berlin uh, has a high concentration of Muslim citizens, mostly from Turkey. In Alexanderplatz, in the past. Um, where the window is in Kreuzberg. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Um, this this art window project. And uh, I bought the flags in Alexanderplatz. I see, so, sorry. Uh, yeah. So they, that, yeah. So that, when, 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 when you know who some of your viewers will be for a particular artwork, mm, that is, yeah. that, that's... I don't see how a responsible artist can just not recognize that. It's so easy. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> it's so easy for artists to do that. I, 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 to me, to me, it was important to make a piece that would, in a roundabout way, refer to this very recent tragedy. Yeah. I wasn't interested in the image of the towers. I wasn't interested in the airplanes. I wasn't interested in you know, oh, poor us, uh, all of that. Mm. I was interested in official and unofficial masking. Mm. I was interested in this 
presence of power, even if it's power that is veiled. Mm-hmm. I was interested in poking people so that they would begin to say to themselves, what might be the relationship between those particular four? Yeah. And uh, I must say that it, it became a very provocative piece. It convinced me to stay not only here, but to stay as an artist and continue my practice full steam ahead because it garnered the the proper necessary thought-provoking direction that I wanted people to go in without me having to tell them anything because I do make a big difference between propaganda and art. Mm -hmm. But it allowed people to just go in the directions that weren't necessarily like where all the media was going. Yeah. Yeah. And subsequently, the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council got wind of this project in Berlin. In Kreuzberg. In Kreuzberg. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. And they invited me to show it in the windows of the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side. And you said no. Did you say no? Or no, you said I no? said yes, because... They- and... Um, show these four burkas for the first year anniversary of September 11th, 2002, because they knew that it was the right way Mm. to go and that I was expanding and opening a door that was necessary for conversation. It has has an odd title. It's called called The Burka Project on... (laughs) Well, it, 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 it's called... It's, it's a, it's, it, just you saying it sounds cute. <laughs> well, it's called The Burka Project. On the borders of my dreams, I encountered my uh, double's ghost. Okay. okay. A very direct and simultaneously indirect title. Mm. And the, the artwork itself does those two things, you know. It's, it, it, it's simultaneously, it's, the, the work is able to be very direct and very extremely indirect. Yeah, I mean, I think on one hand, the burqa as a as a symbol or as an object is quite is quite obvious. But I think it being made with those flags, I think at least if I were to view it, it throws me off just enough to make me stop and think. And I, I would. It seems the way you've been describing it, you don't have text. You're not letting the text dictate what's happening. And then so then I think of what is that relationship. Yeah, the only text one has is the title. Yeah. And 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 so I'm I'm always really I always agonize about my titles. Me too. <laughs> I think I'm bad at titles. I'm like really you know, every time they come up with like a show title, I'm like, ah. I, I think I think for me titles have a very important, important, important function. I'm not saying they don't. I yeah. yeah. They, they 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 do in the sense that they serve for me as a key yes in, yes um uh to that to that door that you you know people have come to your door and here is the key and you know it is strategic even when you call something untitled mm-hmm. um which have i ever done 
I don't think I've ever done that. But <laughs> I've, never, I've never called a piece entitled. I don't think I've ever done that. I mean, there is there is a very large piece. It's like three meters by three meters. I don't know what that is in feet anymore. I think that's like nine feet by nine feet that I did. And when one sees it, you know, it's just this big red velvet field. And it looks like it, it's got like 800 butterflies on pins floating on pins but mm-hmm. instead of butterflies these shiny 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 multi-sized thin foils with uh, with a little embossing of a portrait of josephine baker on every single one of them wow. and when you see this it just looks like this it might as well be like a rothko it's just this kind of very, a very abstract artwork but the title of the artwork is the critical key that flips it for the person because when you read that it's the sky above Port-au-Prince Haiti in the instant of the earthquake of January 2010 you then see all of these and you realize oh it's the sky yeah oh it's a sculpture of 800 little stars Mm. and it's a red sky yeah there was a lot of bloodshed that day so it, it, you know, I realized it's like, ah, it's a literal, it's practically a literal map, but because certain things are just a little bit odd, yeah. you know, we're not used to a velvet red sky. We're not used to stars being on butterfly pins. Um, we're not used to seeing little circular portraits of Josephine Baker, though people might not know that it's her on all of these. And what out? What? What? But it flips completely when you see yeah. the title, and you can't see the abstractness anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and I realized that the title can basically do that. And um, I mean, I think it should. I think the people who do untitled, it's a combination of laziness, <laughs> or the work is so formal that. It does. It has no meaning beyond its formal aspects, you know. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't feel like I have that privilege of those the artists or that generation that is so well known for Untitled. Um, I mean, is there, but do you? I, right at the top, top of my head, I can't think of an artist who's doing Untitled that that wants a specific meaning that then uses Untitled. I mean, there's Felix and Alice Torres, but you always had the parentheses. So yeah, he, you always have the parentheses. So it wasn't like a true untitled. Yeah. Know? And then there's like painters, like abstract painters do untitled or like just random album cover names or, you know, where the title doesn't matter. It's a loss. It's a missed opportunity to not have a title. Yeah. Rather than go untitled, I'd rather just go dry. And yeah. that's that 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 that's the motivation for mm. Sky Above Port au Prince Haiti. Mm. I don't know. I'm not. And, and, uh, some of the other things are not coming to mind immediately. But there can be a certain virtue to just being very straightforward and saying and saying, "Here's the key. Yeah. Here it is. Now go into your fantasy. Yeah. With all the other formal aspects of this. I mean, I. I to a certain degree, even though I find that I found it problematic at the point when the term came up and the, the term post-black 
from some years ago. Like after Obama got elected? After Obama, yeah. That's you know, I heard it the most. Yeah, after, after that. And it was a term that, at least in the art context, that was supposed to be a conversation between Glenn Ligon and Thelma Golden. I didn't, I don't know, I, I'll have to look that up. I didn't know if that was a moment where it was being used a lot. Yeah, in the art context, that, that was some, a, a, kind of, a kind of essay conversation between mm-hmm. the between that two. And, you know, to, to me, to me it's, it, was, it felt at the time like a optimistic uh, fantasy that perhaps people would want to grab onto, mm-hmm. black, white, or otherwise, doesn't matter. But I, I understood, and to a certain degree, I stand by that aspiration, quite frankly. The idea of post-black. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, I, you know, and, and because the issues that we must contend with today as humans, as artists, dot, 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 are pretty much beyond the, these kind of conversations of the quote-unquote culture wars. I think that there's we're 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 in a territory where we will cre- we will be ensnared and create the traps if we anchor ourselves to personal pronouns and bathroom doors. Mm. So we're, we're, right. there's the whole it's an aspirational thing, mm. but I think that we've got to get there very like like yesterday. I think we're we're going to be in a situation where. Fuck, fuck the door and, oh, can I say that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> fuck the pronouns in the door because, quite frankly, the rest of the building is going to be underwater or on, on fire. Yeah, yeah. So the, the conversations, the arguments, the, the discussions, you call it what you will, the themes, the topics have to be profoundly more disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> Whichever way through your art practice, you decide to do it. You know, I've never been dogmatic with regards to black, African-American, because after all, I grew up in a situation in America where did anybody bother to call me Caribbean-American, Haitian-American? No, you know, it was just like, what the particular hegemony of the moment decided. And in the Black American, African American context, that is the hegemony that is very much under a certain kind of control. Yeah. And where there wasn't very much space in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s for really talking, well, what is the West Indian, Latin American, Caribbean experience in the territories of America? It just wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't um, talked about. No. And it's not that it wasn't, that there weren't people there and there weren't partic- practitioners, but it's like very, very much side, side, sidestepped, mm-hmm. you know. The, the, this is the significance of, I forget what year, was it 2007, that the Brooklyn Museum did this huge survey exhibition on, I think, three floors called The Infinite Island. Mm-hmm. of which I participated, but I mean, really like this wonderful diversity of people from the Caribbean and the diaspora to put this on the table. But it, what, it really, 2007, in a place like New York, it's a pretty astounding thing, but it just wasn't really 
being given airspace. Yeah. And part of it has to do with, you know, this kind of holding of 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 territories. Holding of gates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, you've it, it it's it's a very human thing, so it's not really just like, oh, let me point fingers uh, there. Yeah. You'll find this also within the Caribbean, where there's you know, which which already has its issues divided by water and divided by language. Yeah. Um, but you know, you one one will find also situations of ah, all the francophone art is kind of in that direction mm-hmm. and being shown, and nothing else seems to exist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or all the Hispanophone work you know whether it's coming from cuba or the dominican republic or yeah. puerto rico yeah. or that 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 you know so yeah i just kind of think that one needs to kind of like go beyond this you know I, I you 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 saw and heard the piece that i did for one of these um 50 year stonewall the ps120 uh, exhibition called um uh, invisible realness where it's like yeah i decided that it's really important to make an artwork that is about pain that is about emotional hurt breaking up uh with someone and all the kind of psychodrama and that piece, we and go through for the listeners the piece were two broken plates and they were then hung on the wall or like I guess not nailed in, but held with, up with 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 kind of like uh, clips. Yeah, uh, with with the clips that you'd see in a museum, archaeological museum that is displaying broken shards from some cultural dig. And then there was a link to listen to a roboticized voice speak from your diary or letters. Yes, a a breakup letter uh, from many 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 years ago, and the robotic voice reads for 15 minutes this particular uh, text emotional text but with its inability to engage in any type of theater yeah that a a human reader uh, would but i bring i bring it up to say that it's like well it's 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 a project that i think puts out puts puts out this raw stuff that can be a shared experience that many people can relate to at some point in their life. And it's allowed to be raw too. It's allowed to be raw. I think that that is, a, that is an aspect that is a virtue of the machine uh, being engaged mm. to do the reading. Yeah. Though, of course, it has a relationship to the way in which there's a certain aspect of the machine that has in part hijacked part of the rituals of relationships today, either at the front end or the back end. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Yep, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just and, and what what uh, um yeah, that, that what was that piece that piece was simply called Dear John. Yeah, Dear John, yeah. So uh, that that's a pretty direct title. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, I think in the Anglophonic world, we know that that isn't really someone named John. Um, John Doe. It's, it's a pretty much a John Doe. And though it, though it is said somewhat colloquially, people know that it, it, it means a breakup letter. And yes, the, the visual part of the artwork is literally a broken 
uh, two broken dishes, one forward facing, one backward facing, with no texts on on the dishes or decoration at all. But it is this kind of intimate space that one would hear this sad text that is one that we all could share is really the the main part of it. I could have I could have had many 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 other dishes um, up there given the, the psychodrama of the text. Um, uh, but at the same time, it, 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 for every single show that you participate in, there are, always, there are always these little singular things that happen. And in that particular show, I knew that people would also be able to make a, or, or recognize a bit of an allusion towards Felix Gonzalez's Torres's Perfect Lovers mm-hmm. um, piece with the two clocks yeah, that um, that are touching each other. And needless to say, these imperfect lovers, which is a title I rejected, um, <laughs> uh, um, are not touching, yeah. uh, but are really... You know, I didn't think of that relationship until you just said it, or as you were saying it. But I'm happy that I didn't see. Well, they yeah they weren't touching, and I think I think most artists. Well, I think a it was two it's two things. Your title then reference it, and usually I notice that a lot of artists when they do do that, they reference in the title, or it literally are two circular things touching, which is such a direct relationship. But when they're not touching, there's enough two circular objects that are not touching. I think in the art world that it doesn't have to reference it, you know. And so I didn't think of that, and I'm happy that I didn't see that reference because I hate artworks that reference this piece. Well, because, because, because clearly for Felix, there is a significance to the touching. Yes. It's, and, and, and it, the, once you recognize and understand the significance of what that means, then you have to, by extension, think, well, what does it mean when imperfect lovers are unable yeah. to actually really yeah. touch, Yeah, you know, because you can, you can be hugging someone and still not touching them. Mm-hmm. somehow you know yeah and with your heart or your mind or yeah, your soul absolutely mm-hmm. and you know and for the world of people who think about tops and bottoms that's obviously also a play on mm-hmm. the plates mm-hmm. that's there as well uh i was wondering if you wanted to speak a little bit about the haitian pavilion and that whole thing before we wrap up yeah I'm turn the light so let there be light. Um, yeah. So um, yes, this year, actually last year, but uh, it happened, started to happen this year. I was selected to be the solo artist to represent my birth country of Haiti at the 58th Venice Biennial. Um, it's the type of thing that preferably you should already be dealing with two years beforehand. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. It was really in the late fall of the year before that I was approached. And so that's that. A curator, uh, we had a curator in in Port-au-Prince, in Haiti, between Port-au-Prince and Paris, actually. We had an uh, art manager in Basel, Switzerland, which many people would know connected to the Basel Art Basel. I was there this past year. Yeah. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. It's just something else. It's money, honey. Um, And then we had some Venetian partners as well that came through the Basel 
connection. The curator and I focused in on an artwork that I had just created in a smaller version of it in in, in New York, a particular uh, commemorative piece for uh, a young girl that was murdered in the streets of Haiti about 10 days after the earthquake. And so we settled on the theme and the title of the pavilion this year was going to be the spectacle of tragedy. And we, we tried to think about this in the most practical, practical terms because Haiti doesn't have a pavilion space in Italy. And when your country's pavilion doesn't have a pavilion, then it's necessary to find one, rent one, create one, do whatever is necessary to have that space. Yeah. And so we thought to do, do it in the simplest ways. This particular piece was kind of like a hanging mob, mobile sculpture made with reflective plastics and textile flowers. It hangs kind of like a giant octopus, basically with 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 um, strobe like flashlights all around it basically and we settled on two recent videos very very simple direct and indirect because that's my way <laughs> videos to show one in a roundabout way dealing with the migration crisis in Europe and perhaps what w one might view as hunger. Um, this Gloria, right? And this is a video called Gloria, yes. And um, I can quickly frame it out that it shows what some people might know through porn culture as a glory hole. And one simply sees this hole on what looks like a library wall and a pair of brown lips there and that mouth will essentially be fed um uh, look like chicken and sausages um all all specifically very european german uh food yeah which gets very a bit out of control towards the end in its sloppiness in any case it preys if you will the video on people's expectations and then the other video is a kind of what i would call a kind of anti identitarian, anti-consumerist piece. Uh, and In the sense that you don't think it will sell? Well, I, I, I've, been, I've been somewhat lucky or unlucky in the past 20 years to n never make work, including those videos, including the audio piece, based on whether, whether it, sell? it sells or yeah. not sells. I've, I've long ago liberated myself from that. Good and bad <laughs> comes from that. But I think that the good com that comes from that is that I just then am able to poetically engage whatever topic I want, whichever mm. way I feel is appropriate for the way I want to express yeah. it. And so I've wanted to experiment and play with videos for a very long time. I like the idea that the one thing I like about videos is the possibility to be able to essentially show at a hundred different places at the same time if I want to, or if I am 
and, oh, and privileged yeah. enough to yeah, yeah. to be asked to do so. I say that to myself too. But. You know, um, I, I I I I like. I like that that possibility exists and that it it's also able to be shown in different formats. Mm. So I made bling, it's called bling. I made bling as a, a way of kind of criticizing a little bit the way in which we can sometimes also swallow whole identities prepackaged without question. Mm. And so what one sees in this is, uh, and I use myself as a model, but it's not me per se, I suppose you, one could say naked. And I'm constantly given things. And with those things, I'm able to transform myself. And those elements that I'm given transform me into what Americans would know as a blackamoor. And within the European context, it's an image that's very well known. One in the Netherlands as Svarte um, Piet or mm-hmm. Black Peter. And it's also well known in the Venetian context in Venice, where one sees a lot of Black Amours everywhere. And just, you know, to remind people listening that Shakespeare's Othello is very much about a Black Moor. And he is a black moor. He is be- he is at once beautiful and strong and elegant, and he is simultaneously a murderer. Mm. And I don't think I've ever read Othello. It missed out on that. Um, there's an opera yeah. which is often played at in 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 Venice as well. So uh, you can go for the opera as well. And yeah, you can see you can see it and experience it in, in a variety of ways. So I knew that this would fit in a very interesting way, also in the context yeah. of the history of Venice, the cultural history of Venice. Mm-hmm. And yet, this piece is very much about this questionable, menacing figure. And you know, the menacing figure is are at once the hand, which is a white hand that gives these objects to the body, the black body that takes it on without question Mm -hmm. as it escalates into what could become a murder or a suicide. It's unclear uh, as the piece fades out Mm -hmm. essentially. And there always, there's always the presence of children in this particular piece, the audio, the audio. Yeah. I think that audio can be very, very, very powerful. So this is also a territory that I'm interested in. I say in. unfairly powerful. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've seen too many art videos where I'm like, okay, this wouldn't work without the audio, but then I also can't deny its power. Yeah. You know? in, in this particular case, the, the, the this presence of what I think people would view as innocence yeah. um, was necessary for me and how that might get corrupted little yeah. by little the video the the audio are from children playing in venice and playing in berlin at the play yards i just went with my little iphone thing and i bring them in because so many kids particularly white european kids are taught at a young age how harmless this is yeah and yet it's not true because these are seeds that are planted in people very early on. 
And, you know, one sees as this progresses that the character become, goes into this realm uh, that is parallel to the bling bling that we know of, you know, bling bling culture of rappers and, you know, the glitz. So this is also kind of swallowing a particular thing. So it's not really just about white kids that swallow a particular yeah, you're implicating image. multiple different yeah. groups. And so this is why I call it a kind of anti, since it does have I a see, kind of a yeah. violent aspect to it, yeah. uh, an anti-identitarian thing that we just don't need to kind of, to kind of swallow what we're given. Uh, yeah. essentially. And I thought that I thought that this would be very, you know, as a large projection in the pavilion space, a uh, good conversations to um, to bring up at this moment in time. Um, the final piece was going to be a piece connected to a, the 100 year anniversary of another tragedy, because all of these that I've just mentioned are tragedies, but they're played out in this kind of spectacular mm. way. And that is a tile piece on the floor that looks like a pixelated photograph of a uh, of a man named Charlemagne Peralt, who was murdered in 1919 by the American Marines on the island in Haiti as he was promoting a movement to uh, force the occupation of the Americans out and to leave the island. Because I think many, 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 many people don't real Americans don't specifically don't realize how the, the American Marines, the American government invaded Haiti. And for how many years? Uh, more than a decade. I don't remember anymore. How many, how many years? somewhere between 10 and 20 years, maybe 19, invaded the island, um, occupied, it basically. occupied it, unseated the government, changed the constitution to allow for American corporations to buy property, create yeah. factories, essentially creating a kind of a template of what would be played out in other Latin American territories, mm. uh, all of which I can't recite to you now but it was a, sig a significant moment um because a photograph was taken of this person rebelling and his death his corpse was then the photograph of his corpse was then distributed as a kind of propaganda to arrest to stop uh, other people mm. from wanting to protest it ultimately turned him into a martyr yeah, yeah. so it it had that ultimate effect right that was my initial response that was like it, yeah it's amazing um <laughs> i i think i think the the you know we're talking 1919 so i think that the understanding of these particular political strategies and moves were not mm. fully understood yet yeah you know we yeah. we now have a century of live and learn what photography can do so for example the amount of photography of the coming from the Iraq war is extremely minuscule because one has to remember how images such as the little Viet Cong girl yep. running naked in the streets with napalm on her back yep. had a huge effect 
emotionally. For all the dead baby photographs. Absolutely. 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 And so I think certain power structures have learned to intercede now yeah. and not allow those images to be created. And, and, and then it can always be framed in a particular way yeah, yeah. And, and so on. So I thought that it would be a very apt example of the spectacle of tragedy mm. to, re, to redo this piece using tiles on, on, the, floor. on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Which is also kind of loaded in, in other ways. So, um, so that was, that was really the, the, we kept it four pieces that would reinforce this again and again. And finding a space was in itself a huge adventure. (laughs) Um, it turned into ultimately its own tragedy as well. The Venice Biennale is perhaps for those listeners who don't know, it's really like the Olympics of the art world. And with that comes a a kind of arduous challenge that I think even the most well-weathered, experienced artists uh, has to contend with. And I know from all the mutual friends between me and Martin Purrier, who represented the American Pavilion you this year. I don't know him personally, no. We have uh, mutual friends in common. But I know that it was an, a huge work and effort to make his beautiful presentation come through. And there is, with the American pavilion and the French pavilion and the British pavilion and the German pavilion, kind of like my fl- the flags, um, a, <laughs> a institutional memory yeah. that comes from, you know, more than a century of engagement with the Venice Biennale. And I, mean, and, and I think we should point out for the listeners who aren't aware that these pavilions were bought out very early on, right? And so there's like there's technically three parts to the Venice Biennale. There's one where all the pavilions are, and that was set up. It's a there's no more space there, but basically a bunch of buildings or lands were bought out by countries, and then buildings were built, and those are representative of the at the time countries who could pay. For the land, I don't know if they own the land, but they own. A, they have access to their own pavilion, and then there's another. That's the Arsenale, and then if you were a country that at the time did not have the funds or were not part of this circle that that uh, paid money for this spot, you then in all subsequent Venice Biennales would have to rent out a space, and then those are the satellite events or satellite pavilions or art shows. Exactly, exactly. So it, it is, it, you, you, you were going in the completely right direction there with regards to the built pavilions that are in the Giardini garden space, that those buildings are owned by the individual countries, but not the land that the building sits on. And so subsequently, those buildings still continue to pay rent to the Venetians, because it is really important to understand that Venice for the last several hundred years recognized that it was a dying city. 
it, 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 it's just unquestionable. And so they came up with this concept in the 19th century to create this particular big uh, show with this kind of the national pavilions. They didn't particularly see what is beginning to happen now with the question of national borders and identities and how fluid that is also kind of changing and breaking. And also they probably didn't foresee how big art would become, right? Because when the Venice Biennale started, like art was not this major global money-making machine. Yeah, I, I, my, the first time I went to the Venice Biennale was in 2001. And I can most certainly tell you that there is a noticeable difference between 2001 and um, 2019. I, it's just, it's palpable in so many, many, many different ways. I, I, I do think that the Italians have been aware of the huge presence of financial patronage around the arts yeah. in a way that I think is much more present throughout Italy than you would see in Germany yeah. and so many other territories. But... It, 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 you're you're spot on that it's now in a situation where at the opening week of the biennial there are huge yachts moored all throughout. And also, right the before lagoon. it opened, didn't a cruise ship crash into Venice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> because 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 essentially Venice has turned a, a, a new corner. And it is clear that in 50 years, the Venice that we know, even of today, won't be there. It, it, you know, it'll yeah. be like some mythical um, Atlantis. Atlantis. Yeah. Which would be actually nice. It could be. be. Nice that, it could be. It could be. Uh, that's what it they'll, figure, they'll figure out a way to monetize it for, for sure. Yeah. Um, and it is one of my favorite, favorite places to go. And I really do go there at least every two years and in-betweens. And I've had art residencies there where I've lived there for three months. It's an astounding fantasy, weird place to live. It is truly a dead city. And there that means many, many complicated things. And there is, there's always been a kind of very established art world of sorts, market world, presence there that has exploited, been able to exploit its presence in Venice uh, for many years. And that's just kind of grown exponentially. So now you have these satellite projects that you mentioned that where a whole building, uh, you have places like the Prada Foundation who, you know, transforms, up, uh, um, who gives the privilege to one or two artists to completely transform it into an artwork. This year was Yanis Kunelis, right? I think that's who they showed. Yeah, uh, this year, I'm not sure. <clears throat> yeah, Yanis Kunelis. I did. I did. I, I have. I, 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 I'm. My experience this year, uh, I didn't. I was unable to see much because of what we were salvaging for our pavilion. Yeah, what happened? Which, there? which we, 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 we had found. We had found a space eventually, after a number of rather profound and challenging, difficult proposals, some of which were Trojan horses, some of which were 
absolutely unacceptable, some of which were beyond the means of a small team that we had um, financially, and so on and so on. And in the very last moment, we had actually found a wonderful space, which is listed in the current catalog of the Venice Bi uh, Biennial. So um, that's all that matters for history. <laughs> <laughs> the catalog. It's catalog. wonderful. It's a wonderful catalog. And I'm, I'm I think someone said if your if your show isn't reviewed or in a catalog, it didn't happen. Un 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 unfortunately, there, there's an aspect of the uh, uh, to practitioners in the art world where th those books are necessary. And I'm, I'm, I'm very much a lover of books. So in any case, we're, we're, we're listed in the space that we did find. It's the Navy Officers Club at the mouth entrance of the Arsenale, where many of the projects or half of the main show and some of the pavilions are. And um, we unfortunately found ourselves in a situation of time and money pressures colliding. And I believe the American expression is money talks, bullshit walks. Mm. And in that final month, we were short approximately 20,000, 20, 20 for, for, for rent? Yes, for yes, rent. yes. And that alone, and it was not allowed, we were not allowed to find that, those funds for the duration of the May through November time. What do you mean? We, in other words, we couldn't just, we had to, it all needed to be paid by the end of April. Oh, the shit. Whole it thing. couldn't be on a month. No. What? Uh, no. And the, uh, that was, that was a situation that I think it's perhaps a, become a standard in Venice. I think that different spaces, different landlords, different whatever, just have made that their standard policy that if you want a space, you pay for it the full from the whole, you pay for that full amount of time mm. in one block before it begins. And that for us became untenable and impossible. And we found that a, someone else for their own project, not, not, not a pavilion was able to, essentially take the space because f money was not an object to them. Yeah. And, uh, um, nice of them. Yeah. 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 Well, this, this is, this is, this is part of the, part of, part of the art world. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. but I have to say that, and it is important to say that there were many complicated things going on in Island side. So back in the Caribbean, and there, 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 there were profit organizations that were ready to help, but the governmental bureaucracy that was connected to the project was in its own crisis mm. as an extension to the, if you will, manufactured crisis of Venezuela. So there were many, many people, citizens, rioting in the streets of Haiti during the period of March, April, May, mm. and maybe even before that, maybe February as well, who wanted to pressure the government to reveal the funds that had been received through a agreement with Venezuela during the time of Chavez. Mm. 
and this where is, the money went, and where the money went. So this is this is, and and this is the same moment that oh, the gosh. American government is is pressuring countries and to recognize some sort of opposition leader in in Venezuela to be recognized as president and the 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 Haitian government who had received these benefits acquiesced to that pressure and also recognized the opposition president mm. uh, person who was being called yeah that. so you can see how deep the the, the this tie this kind yeah. of um, was happening and so art or this cultural i don't want to call it ex- experiment but but this cultural experience that we were trying to put out there into the world to engage in this kind of cultural diplomacy of cultural exchange exchange and yeah was ultimately becomes a victim of this larger kind of politics yeah because just that small amount of money prevented then this possibility to acquiesce to the needs and requests of essentially a landlord business that yeah. is you know renting out a a space yeah so it's really that stupid it's really that dumb the details in this are seemingly endless they're not but they're seemingly so and they're it's a very kind of thick web of intersecting uh, yeah. things going on and it clearly would not have been maybe seen as a proper thing i think for a government that is constantly framed with the text of the poorest country in the western hemisphere mm. you you'll look at every newspaper article that that's always the second sentence after or that's always the 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 sentence after the comma it's somewhere Haiti. it's somewhere yeah. in there yeah so clearly there could have been criticism oh how could Haiti spend you know this money on renting a it's not wasn't even a pavilion uh, a villa but a space you know that amount of money on a on a space but unfortunately that's simply what business requests yeah and in the scheme of things we actually had rejected offers that were financially obscene you know you mean that you mean spaces that were asking for more than oh that. huge yeah. huge yeah so this was actually within the um that context and that and and that was f- by the virtue of the fact that we had european partners who were very um n- uh, not just european partners sorry venetian partners who were very much new and had their fingers on connections with different landlords mm. so that's how we knew um yeah. that this was actually making sense so we we lost it and at the very last moment our venetian collaborator was able to offer us a, a different temporary space within one of these buildings during the duration of the VIP opening week and so those were the people within that week who were able to see something they were not able to see those specific pieces because those specific pieces took up way too much space the video projections the the, the large sculpture the tiles so the, those were impossible and so those a, were never shown. Those were not able to be shown. Mm-hmm. The, the pieces of the video were shown on a monitor, but that that's yeah. not the same. And a new map of the Caribbean that I had just 
that I had created for a traveling exhibition in the United States connected with Pacific Standard Time that the Getty usually funds was shown. A black and white version of that map was shown. And I created a new painting based on this kind of tragic beggar's text that I had found while I was visiting Madrid in December with uh, a Dominican friend, um, Jorge Pineda, an artist based in the Dominican Republic. So we were walking around and I saw a Spaniard. And, you know, it should be understood that, you know, the Occupy movement movement. had its own uh, version in Spain. Mm. And it was called the movement of the indignados, the the indignant, indignant, you know, sounds way better in Spanish. And so there's really been this kind of very strong presence of protest. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this one man with a huge sign, it wasn't particularly a political sign. It was really a begging sign. And he was begging for the love of God to please help him and his four children um, to eat but his sign was, you know, it was, it was, it, I would say, well, his sign was like two meters by three meters. It was huge. <laughs> and that in itself was shocking. Yeah. And so I decided to replicate his beggar's sign hmm. and to have it in this kind of club space, hmm. basically. And I found very luxurious, expensive, beautiful fabric to paint it on. Hmm. And I painted his words in gold. But they were the same begging text, mm. and it ironically, his his the beginning of his 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 text is the same title as Damien Hirst's um, skull for the love of God, mm. and so I decided to call this piece the, the love, love of God, the love of God, mm. yes, in 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 Spanish. So basically, taking yeah. taking the, the this beggar's text, yeah, um, as the title, but ironically, it really does have that and without without rhinestones or not rhinestones without diamonds or a skull i just decided let me replicate this and have it be in gold and in this beautiful fabric in this particular thing and what i was able to do was hang it there and simultaneously I i spent a day where i had taken a photograph of it of 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 the original photograph not of my painting but of the original beggar's text with the beggar in it and I framed it and I basically took it throughout different street locations in Venice and just let it stay there like for five minutes then moved it to another location Mm. to another location to another location yeah you know a kind of odd little let's say performative echo to what I had witnessed do you have document is that is documentation important for you for that case I did document it. It was, for me, interesting to see the people who noticed it and those who ignored it in yeah. the same way that in Madrid, this man with this mammoth beggar's sign was also being noticed and noticeably ignored as yeah. well, you know? So I wanted to do that. And it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a moment where I wanted to do something in Venice as a kind of alternative to what we were unable to launch where I'm not using anything that is referencing Haiti as a tragedy, Hmm. because I think that Haiti does not in any way have the copyright or own tragedy. Yeah. (laughs) 
and that you know I'm 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 in accord with Audrey Lord. You know there is no hierarchy of oppressions, and that I would present something like this remade Beggar's Sign as an example of a spectacle of tragedy. Mm. You know because it really is that it really was that and it really is that. Yeah. You know. And so, yeah, that was that was ultimately what I was able to do. The pavilion will always remain this kind of odd historical little blip. Yeah. I would like to be able to, in the next year or two or three, who knows, be able to restage or show really, it again. Really, really do what the the pavilion wanted to to, to yeah. show mm-hmm. i'm reluctant to accept or be nominated next time around i really feel that another artist from the island or the diaspora should have that opportunity they could always invite me as a special guest star but still <laughs> i would rather someone else attempt it and i think it, it, it was also an opportunity to break away from what are the expectations that have been created around in people's imagination when they think about art that is connected to Haiti. Mm. It's It's been mired for two generations at least now in naive painting. Um, and um, Well, I mean, sadly, that's what, that's what sells, right? Because we always forget that the art market is run by white institutions, reviewed by white critics, bought by white patrons. Well, I mean, Don't you ha- think so? ha- 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 Haitians are not stupid, so they definitely, many Haitians have been able to figure out how to monetize on that cliche, a cliche that stems back to André Breton of the Surrealists, who visits Haiti in the 19... 19- 30s and who makes this very public declaration through his intellectual networks about the Haitian vision and surrealism in connection to the Haitian image of the world and voodoo or whatever. And so he, as a kind of, I don't know, um, white male European voice, was able to put a kind of a his own take on his personal experience of what spoke to him mm-hmm. and connects it to his own movement. Yeah, and as evidence, essentially, it's it's the evidence of why everything everything he says is true mm-hmm. about you know his surrealistic his, manifesto, yeah. if you will. So it just facilitated a particular blah blah of sorts. And, and and eventually that um, yeah that 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 begins to be what the white collector European collector yeah. will choose. They won't choose the thing that looks like. I'll, I'll just mention Rothko again. Sorry, Rothko, you're just a good yeah. <laughs> anchor for beautiful. Um, I was never a work. fan of Rothko. <laughs> Some people hate me when I say that. I'm like, yeah, I just, oh, I don't. I'm, 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 I'm moved by a certain aspect of it. But, um, you know, so, so the market essentially starts to move what people do. 
Yeah. And that has that has happened. And I don't it's it's not that top dollar was paid for these things either, but it, it, it did nurture, if you will, a certain quote, you know, I'll use scale quotes, a certain school of painting yeah. that came to be that way. And and again, you know, people didn't get top dollar. It's always important to clarify that Haiti is not poor. The proper term that should be used is never really that it's poor. The term that should actually be used is that it's impoverished. Well, it's how, it's how you, made to be poor. Just, it's strategically oh, see, made to be poor. Mm. When when mm, yeah. when when a foreign company has factories there that is making dolls that are being sold in Disney World refuses to allow the local government to raise the minimum wage to anything above $6 a day, you realize that it's a systemic yeah. structural impoverishment. Mm. You see, yeah, that's what I'm. That's that's the difference. Yeah, <laughs> that it's 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 deeply systemic, and that the foreign company that has been able to establish a factory there is much easier to put ten thousand dollars in the pockets of legislators yeah. than it is to what that would mean financially if you. If you doubled, yeah, yeah. But in that in that view, we can apply that to basically all the world. Remember, the invasion of 1915 was experimenting on a template. Yeah, yeah. And one of the first things they did was to take over the constitution and to change it. Because before that, you needed to be a citizen of the country to own land, to actually own a piece of Haiti. Yeah. And um, that was the first thing that was erased. So a template that begins more than 100 years ago then has 100 years to play itself out in variations in many different ways. And by no means are the Americans the only culprit that learns this particular template because these are templates that become financial and economic models in schools of economy and universities as well. And so that's simply, you know, yeah. so whether we're talking Malaysia or da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So Haiti has very much been, and I still think to this day, it remains uh, a kind of Petri, petri dish, uh, where one can look and see what happens if that happens. What happens if this happens? Mm-hmm. What happens if this happens? And yeah, it's in, a set of experimentation for yeah. And and I and I and I don't say that powers. I don't say that there's any singular. It, it's not exactly a James Bond world where you know there is you know some evil villain in any singular um, spot. Just a whole bunch of greedy people all acting in self-interest. And greed, greed. there is no copyright on greed the same mm-hmm. way that there's no copyright on stupidity. And so that greed is a kind of equal opportunity thing. Yeah. And so 
you know, it, whether it's the monsoons in Asia or the effects of a seven point points, a seven point earthquake in Haiti, where such huge masses uh, died, it serves as an interesting way to look at in our contemporary times what happens when a natural scare quotes disaster happens yeah it is a tragedy but i'm sure that there is an analysis that's made as to what are what are the positive aspects of such tragedies what are what's the silver lining you know what gets repaired what yeah. doesn't get repaired and i'm not only talking about haiti in this regard but it, 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 it is a very interesting thing. And we're told by scientists at this point in the clearest, starkest terms that this phenomena will not only happen in Haiti, where there will be this phenomena of 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, you know, et cetera, yeah. uh, in one swoop. Yeah. So I think, yes, I think that it's... St these things are analyzed and looked at and go, oh, okay, hmm, what can, what can come from this positive and negative and how do we move on? Yeah. You know? And that's what, that's what I mean when I say that what we're confronted with today, artists need to deal with is pretty, pretty serious. And I don't mean just those deaths. I mean, also, you know, is there accountability for this type of research and knowledge. I don't know, you know, how much of it is, is avoidable. We don't know, you know, it, we, we would know if we actually see who, who knows about the particular surveys and research work that's been done and the reports that have been disseminated, you know, and to yeah. what degree, but it, it, it's, 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 it's a complicated three-dimensional chess. I don't know. Maybe it's four-dimensional chess that's actually kind of going on. You know, no, no Illuminatis. It's, it's no Illuminatis. It's not, it's not that. So, um, but anyway, maybe that's a good place to close for the, the, the pavilion and um, yeah. that it w wasn't able to happen. I'm hoping that something will happen uh, next time and that other voices should be brought into the fold and that one can happen. And um, I hope that maybe there might be some offers from some museums or some art spaces that would be able to fund recreating what we were on the path of, of creating, yeah. you know, because I think that the messages embedded in the DNA of each of the works that were set to be exhibited are very necessary conversations that have to be talked about on a regular basis. Not just the artwork, but that the artwork serves as a cat catalyst. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, maybe it would inspire other creative people, not just visual artists, because there can be all these different ways of being creative to engage in a certain type of activism. I, I bumped into this uh, while I was at the Biennale. 
a curator had really wanted me to meet and she wanted her to meet me, this South African artist named uh, Zanelli Mahali. Okay. Um, she's a photographer based in South Africa. I forget Joburg or Cape Town. And her, she, I suppose, like, like Cindy Sherman, uses herself a lot. But she's also done a lot of projects where she focuses in on lesbian and trans women. Um, I think it's all her photographs there. Yeah. They're, they're often black and white. They're like, yeah, large and quite beautiful. They're quite, quite beautiful. And I had a wonderful, I had a wonderful uh, interaction with her in Venice. And um, she, she said, you know, you and me, we're both, we're healers. All of us artists, we're healers. And I knew we were doing something. And I often would talk about what we do as being as significant as the scalpel of a surgeon. But to hear her just say it so clearly and bluntly, I was really struck by it and mm -hmm. applauded her directness for all I'm saying, oh, I like to be directness. Yeah, It really took her having to say that. And so she was obviously saying it about herself. She was saying it about me, but she was saying it about all of us right. who take this path. And, and I think that's actually worth taking seriously, mm. that we are healers. And there are so many different types of things worth healing, mm. whether it's, you know, uh, I, I, I won't get into the long list. It's not necessary. But that reframed it for me in a really good way, because I think perhaps it's easier for people to say things like art activism or artistic activism but I'm not a fan of that <laughs> you know i yeah, think yeah. i think that the healing is uh, yeah this is this is it and yeah there th there's a certain thing there's a certain thing that can function as a catalyst to to spark activism this is totally true but it's because there's been something expansive there that has engaged in a certain type of healing yeah. that has allowed someone to see enough to then take action, yeah. whichever way they do it, you know? And that was really something nice to walk away from Venice with, you know, the words of another artist, you know? So maybe that'd be a good place to end. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think there's a lot to think about and unpack happy to have talked to you um is do you want to do any plugs for yourself um at the moment i'm in a really good space with uh you know there are some shows that are traveling like this undercurrents exhibition of caribbean art throughout the united states it's next it's next going to let's see it was it's in it was recently in maine um, of all places. Yeah. Or was, uh, and it's now in Delaware. I have a show that went from New York from the um, Hunter East Harlem Gallery that is called Dust Spectacles. Okay. Um, that's moving to Miami, but I'm not sure of the venue yet. So they, 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 these projects are somehow kind of happening without me in the sense that the work is already done. And I'm working on a project here now that 
hopefully in the end of the year will uh, be put up. It's a permanent plaque. Well, it's more than a plaque, but it's a permanent commemoration of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the American scholar who was a student at Humboldt University here in 1896 as a young man. And so this will commemorate his relationship to Berlin. Mm. And I feel very privileged that through my networks and having lectured at, at Humboldt, that they asked me to be the artist to conceive of something mm. that would be permanently installed in the halls of, wow. of, of Humboldt. Yeah. So that's pretty much occupying my mind at this point. And um, so I'm kind of happy not to have too many other distractions, yeah. basically. Yeah. So right. thank you. Thank you for thank your you curiosity. So Yeah, it was it was wonderful. Thank you, Jean Marie. <laughs> Thank you. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.